Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head, I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is Mario Pancera. Mario is the director of the Post-Growth Innovation Lab at the University of Vigo. His work focuses on responsible research and innovation, and innovation for post-growth. He gained a PhD in management at the University of Exeter Business School, and went on to a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellowship in Brussels. Mario is also an international faculty at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Cape Town, where he teaches responsible innovation. Welcome to In Over My Head, Mario. Welcome to you, and thank you very much for, for inviting me. So looking at our modern society, it seems like growth is always the goal. As long as we're spending money, the economy is booming, and everything is fine. But it seems to me that prioritizing growth above all else is what got us into the climate crisis in the first place, and I don't know if it's compatible with finding a solution. So I want to explore degrowth as an alternative. Your post-growth innovation lab has several projects that could possibly help me find some answers, so I'm looking forward to discussing your work. Maybe to start, if someone hasn't heard about this term, what exactly is degrowth? Okay, well, uh, this is a huge question, actually, because degrowth is not one thing, it's many things. I would love to say that actually is many people with different ideas. And it's quite complex argument because it's something that has to do with academic work, so it's research, and it's something that also has to do with lay people trying to uh, challenge a dominant vision about progress, modernity. So it's difficult to define. There are people that uh, try to map the definition of degrowth, and then there are more than 100 definitions. Probably my definition is that degrowth is the idea that we can live a good life independently from the accumulation of material stuff. It can be goods, it can be money, it can be status, right? So the idea that we can actually have a um, good life, we can even improve our life, even though if we don't gain more money, even though if we don't own more things and more stuff, and even though if we are not consuming more. So this is the basic idea, right? Thinking beyond this idea that we need more to stay better, to, to improve our life. So what is the difference between degrowth and post-growth? To be honest with, with you, I, I don't see a lot of difference. There is a lot of over, overlapping uh, aspects. And actually, you can see this through right, buzzword, if you like, that is an umbrella concepts used by different community of practitioners or academics in different moments, in different contexts. Okay. If you want to draw a line between degrowth and post-growth, maybe we can say that degrowth is a slogan which is born to be provocative, right? Challenging. Because we in the North, in the affluent society, it seems many people, including me, think that we reached a moment in which our economic progress become uneconomic, as people like Ivan Illich used to say. So the benefit that growth is providing us are less than the damages that economic growth is creating, right? So this process becomes anti-economic. And that's why we need to degrowth. So we need to decelerate. We need to slow down, right? Post-growth is something more general in the sense that post-growth is how we can create a society that is not constructed, is not built around this idea that the more, the better. That's we need to increase GDP. We need to increase consumption to be to stay better, right? And this is a more general question more general uh, topic. And I would say it's important to distinguish in which context we can use degrowth. 
I personally speaking, I never use the growth and never say this specific, never use this specific buzzword when I'm dealing with people from the global south. Because I think that's who is to the growth are people in the north, not people in Africa or not people in South America or many parts of Asia in which we grew historically on their expenses. So we actually extract resources to grow. So there is a, a response, different responsibilities, unequal sharing of responsibility about the damages that economic growth, capitalism traditionally caused. So in those contexts, I tend to use post-growth as a more holistic way of talking about the same things, basically. And so maybe just generally you can talk about the work that your lab is doing right now. Yes. As you say, my lab is called Post-Growth Innovation Lab. So you have post-growth in the title, you have innovation, and you have lab. So it's a place in which we have a number of researchers with a very, very diverse background. So we have people who have PhD in history for Cambridge, for example, people with PhD in ecological economics from, from Leeds. You have people from India focusing on science, technology, and innovation studies. You have people like me that I, I originally had a master's degrees in telecommunication engineering and PhD management. We have people who study critical management or critical consumption, critical marketing, huge variety of, of profiles. And main founding of the group is coming from the European Research Council, which is a research council funded by the European Union, whose principal aims is to found groundbreaking crazy research, I would say, right? Like the frontier of knowledge. So this is where most of our money comes from, I would say 80%. And the project that is founded under this, uh, this scheme is called Prospera. Prospera in Italian, I'm Italian, means prospering, right? Thrive. And it stands for innovation without growth. How can we imagine a science and innovation system in a post-growth era? So this is the basic idea. And the focus of the project is really like science, technology of innovation. Why? This is not conventional in degrowth studies. A lot of people working in degrowth historically have focused on frugality, individual values, or Bigger questions like ecological economics, studying in uh, flows of energy and materials, social metabolism, why society, the way the economy is organized, is unsustainable. It's a deceptive process that consumes energy and resources that are not renewable. Why growth physically is not possible. But very, very few uh, scholars and researchers focus on the role of technology in perpetuating and reproducing this imperative of growth, or how I call it, the religion of growth. And innovation and technology and science has been instrumental for the simple fact that innovation and technology, I sometimes I will use uh, the two terms in uh, the same way, you know, but actually they are not the same because technology is the, the, the artifact. Innovation is the process that allows this artifact or the process to produce something to diffuse, to be accepted, right? So you can have an invention that solves a problem. It can be an artifact, can be a product. When the innovation, the, the invention is accepted, become an innovation. So when, when it's widely used, become an innovation. Why innovation is important in capitalism? Because as the economist Joseph Schumpeter said in the, in the 40s of the, the last centuries, innovation is the essential fact of capitalism. Only through innovation, capitalist accumulation is possible. Right? Because innovation introduces increase in productivity. So increases productivity. Increasing productivity means that you, you can produce stuff, more stuff in less time. Right? And this allows 
the possibility to basically sell more stuff and accumulate more money. So this is very basic principle of capitalism that's based on the notion of increasing efficiency of technology and productivity. Now, this process is probably one of the most important mechanisms that feeds economic growth. So my question when I wrote the proposal was, if innovation, technological innovation is the engine of economic growth, and if economic growth, as many post-growth people argue that is unsustainable and will end in, in the near future, are we condemned to live in a world that doesn't grow and is not creative and is not innovative, right? Because of this connection between innovation, creativity, and economic growth. Actually, many people say that we need economic growth to boost innovation. They say, let's invest in R&D because through investment in R&D, we will have more innovation. And this is the conventional wisdom. This is the mainstream. Now, for me, this is totally wrong <laughs> for many reasons. First, because economic growth isn't unsustainable. Second, because reducing human creativity, human ingenuity to the idea that we need to we put our creativity at the service of increasing productivity of production is a very miserable way of looking at human beings. <laughs> this is my, my impression. If you want to get into more details, we can, we can see that's the way we imagine technology as two basic problems, big problems. One is technological determinism and the other one is technological productivism. So on one hand, we say that technology development is inevitable. Whatever we do, there will be always somebody who will invent something new. So there is a linearity in the technology evolution. And the second point, productivism, say that all the new technology is always good. Whatever is new is good, right? It can come with risk, but we can manage the risk. These two principles that dominate innovation studies, but also policy, these are myth. We know that not all new technology is good. Think of nuclear power, think of a lot of weapons and arms industry, think of social media, right? And many other things, I can talk about Google cars, driverless cars that are not able to identify black people on the street because they're programmer, the programmer of the algorithm of facial recognition, they were all white, they didn't train the algorithm with black people. And I can list infinite example of how the new was not good and come associated with tremendous risk. The second one, which is technology is neutral and is as a deterministic process, is also untrue. We know that actually values, worldview, even ideology are embedded in the design of technology. As in the, in the example that I just told you about the driverless car of Google, people unconsciously feed the algorithm with pictures of people that look like them. So technology is biased. Or the famous case of Robert Moses, where it was the, the urbanist behind the organization of New York and Manhattan, they planned the bridges that connected the, the Long Island to, to the main island, of, uh, to Manhattan Island, too short to prevent public bus to go to reach the beaches and the places in which people used to, to live, right? Why? Because public transportation used to be used to Latinos, Black, Italian. So through technology, you actually can create discrimination. So technology is not neutral. So coming back to the projects, the projects look at ways in which organization can innovate according to a different paradigm. That innovate not for the sake of increasing efficiency, for the sake of efficiency and productivity, and then economic growth. This is the first level. The second level, how we can create networks of organization that can innovate without the imperative of economic growth. And the third level is the institutional level. 
how can we create institutions, science institutions, that are not co-opted by the imperative of growth? In other words, how can we decommodify science and put science at the service of people? So these are the three main objectives of the biggest research project uh, that, that is called Prospera in our lab. Then we also have another big project that is on circular economy, in which we try to debunk this idea of circular economy that we think is an impossibility. And we have minor projects that are more or less in the same line. Let's talk about that first idea that you had mentioned about innovation, because I think that's really interesting that it's not necessarily the technology itself, but it's that idea that it becomes widespread and it just becomes the norm. How do we tackle that innovation challenge? There are many things about innovation and technology in general. No? What, what is technology? What is our role with technology? One that the, of the dimension that I found fascinating about that, there are solid studies. For example, what is called the STS, Science, Technology and Society Studies, which is a big discipline. We know from the 70s that technology is not neutral. It's a political process. Technology is doing politics by other ways. That's values, politics is embedded in artifacts. You know, there is a very famous paper, Do Artifacts Have Politics? by London Wiener, seminal paper published in 1980, in which he tells the story of Robert Moses' uh, politics of uh, urbanism and how city were designed for cars, how you, we can use art architecture for imposing a worldview for certain interests, right? So politics means also that technology comes with a set of values and, polit and politics and interests of usually powerful people. This is very important to say. Why is it important? Because this is the first step to imagine alternative way of framing technology. In these moments, when you, today, if you listen to people talking about science technology, it's always a science. I read a very funny tweet on Twitter during the pandemic saying, guys, stop questioning vaccines uh, because uh, science is not democratic. Science is about facts. Science is not about facts. Science is about consensus, about scientists, right? And this is something that every scientist knows very well. It's about controversies. It's not about facts. It's not about the construction of truth. It's about how we deal with uncertainty and how we reduce uncertainty. It's not about reaching the truth. And the, with technology, is the same. So once we accept that what we see around us, we move in a car, we fly in an airplane, we are talking now on, in, on the internet. Once we realize that this is only one possible option that was, was determined by a complex set of historical condition, social interests, economic interests, when we accept that, we can also say, okay, this was only one possible option. We can have different options. We can arrange our life in a different way using technology in a different way. So denaturalizing technology and science is the first step. Once you do that, you start looking at alternatives. No, like in the cases of Robert Moses, was not a fact, given fact, that America should be organized around the cars. We could have organized around bikes, for example. When you open up the debates, and you, you, you can find thousands of possible technological features. Some can be more technological advanced, some can be more frugal. So this is the first aspect that I found extremely fascinating in this. The second one is the notion of ownership and why our model of seeing innovation, science, technology is really shaped 
by capitalism and capitalism uh, private ownership model because this really uh, limits our imaginaries. And I always do the example of the Roman Empire that was based on slavery, right? The way we organize companies didn't change a lot since Roman empires. We accept and actually we, we want, we claim that our states should be democratic. We also pretend that other culture states should be run according to our principle. We criticize Russia. Russia is not a democracy. We criticize China. It's not a democracy. Iran and blah, blah, blah. But we never question the fact that the place in which we spend at least one third of our life, the company, is not a democratic place. You are not supposed to say to your boss, okay, let's produce this. Let's produce bike instead of missiles or weapons. How we arrive to, this, to, to, to the acceptance that the place in which we spend most of our time is not a democratic place? We want that the other culture accept our, our democratic organization of the state. So once you give to the workers the right to decide what to produce, amazing stuff can happen. Really amazing stuff. And there was a super interesting case, failed case. The Lucas company, Lucas conglomerates were company that produced engines and all sorts of uh, machinery for UK industry in the 70s. The board decided that to fire a lot of people. So some of the workers come together and say, okay, now, why we have to close our factories? Let's produce something different. They come together and say, okay, we have the ability, we have the skill to produce many things. Let's come together and say what we think is needed in our territory. And they came, came up with a lot of innovation. Incubators that cost a fraction of their equivalent in private markets, renewable energy uh, technology. The plan was uh, was accompanied with the financial plan, so it was also financially viable in the normal market economy system. And under the slogan of "We want socially useful production," they presented the plan to the board. The board say no, of course, but not because it was not financially viable, because accepting the plan meant accepting the possibility that the workers can decide what to produce. Not only how to pr- produce, that, was, that is always the discussion, no? That's a union help us to improve the working condition. But as far as I know, no union say the workers should have a right or voice in deciding what they are producing. So if you give the right to the worker to decide what to produce and also what to do with the surplus of production, amazing things can happen. They can say, okay, we want innovation, but don't, we don't want innovation to increase the profits of the company. No, we want innovation because we can produce the same amount of stuff with half time and we can work half time. The rest of the time I can spend with my family. We can make love, we can make music, we can do whatever we want. You can see the revolutionary thinking of this. So it's technology and this social organization around technology. So it's not just the technicity, the scientific aspects, the materiality. It's also how you arrange social life around technology and how technology enables or disables this social practice. Like in Robert Moses' example, that kind of technological arrangement enable racial segregation, right? And disable equality in a way, like the Google driverless car. Technology is enable, can enable, but can also disable social practices. I found it extremely fascinating, this, this aspect.
And I think with that example, you know, something that comes to mind is like, where does that change start? Because if I imagine maybe generally, it probably depends on what sort of industry someone's working in. Perhaps they just want to, you know, punch the clock and, and they don't really care about what they're making. They just want to do the job and then go home and, and not have to think about it. And then on the other side, I see maybe does that change need to come from the organization itself saying that we want this change and we want you to be involved in what we're making rather than just being an employee. Is that maybe where the change would start from? Well, actually, you touched a very important point, and uh, we should be very careful about that because, well, I'm sort of critical management scholar, but so I studied the, the usual, the conventional mainstream management theory, and there was this debate. At the beginning, like the four classical Fordism say, how we convince people to work in, in production line? Because they didn't want to. People in Manchester at the beginning of industrial, the Industrial Revolution, they didn't want to, to work in factories. They were horrible places. Imagine the beginning of Industrial Revolution. They used to be uh, uh, working in the field, totally free. They self-organized. So when you oblige people through the enclosure, if you read Michael Carpolani, Polani, for example, Great Transformation, he tells very well how this process of enclosure, dispossessing people from land, creating urban proletariat, and these people didn't, they didn't have any choice to but working in the factory. So they had to force people to work in the factory. The same happened during Fordism. So Ford say, okay, nobody wants to work in the factory. Let's double salary. Actually, he paid very well. And then management scholars start wondering how we can convince people to be more productive. And then in the 70s, in the 80s, new frames emerge. Like, let's convince, let's create organizational culture. Let's convince the worker that their interests are our interests. But this is part of the cooptation, right? But all this uh, discourse uh, hides an important truth that the elite, managerial elite interests are not the same of, of the workers, right? This can be can receive some bonus, some incentive and rewards. But at the, the end of the day, the structure of the company is a class structure. So there is a winning winning class and a losing class. That's why I'm... Well, in a group, we are very interested in self-management, self-managed organization, cooperatives, commons, occupied factories, factories that, that have been closed because of uh, outsourcing and being uh, occupied and production and start again from the workers and by the workers and for the workers. One of my PhD students is studying a very interesting case of a French factory in Marseille producing tea for Lipton. The company closed the factory, the workers combined together with the help of civil society organizations that they managed to restart the production and they are doing quite well. So we are interested in how this can happen and how this can be scaled up or scale out, as we say, instead of going bigger to diffuse horizontally. Or there are be very important movements of occupy factories in, in Argentina, for example. Different models in which we can be producers, but also the owner of our production. Now, this is very old notion, Marxist. But, but still, these are not totally new uh, new ideas, but that combined with, with uh, the discourses and the issues that I was raising about the way we organize society around technology gain more uh, a different perspective, right? And it seems like in some of those examples you've given, it's usually been a disruption that's actually happened where a factory is closed or people have lost their jobs that had caused them to suddenly be proactive and start their own thing. Do you feel like that maybe needs to happen more? Maybe maybe more of a disruption to get things shaken up a little bit? 
Yes, this is um, this is exactly the question that I had when I first attended the presentation, which this was this was this young researcher presenting Argentina movements, right? But crises are always a moment in which human creativity and also solidarity. That's, that's super interesting, no? That's how economists uh, are wrong. They say uh, that's uh, human being a rational being, rational calculating being. This is neoclassical economics, uh, the theory that dominates, right? That uh, we are acting only on the basis of our personal interest, no? And this is totally wrong. When a crisis uh, hits, you see all sorts of solidarity emerging because we are social beings. We are not uh, totally selfish, not totally altruist. We are a mix. And in a situation of crisis, this emerge. Climate change is a sort of crisis that can create this change. Now the point is that are we going to mobilize uh, and to uh, and to drive this this change uh, quick quick enough? That's the point. And that's at the end of the day, I think is the only thing, Michael. I mean, my my idea is that the only thing that's really proved to be successful in terms of social change is people mobilization. There was a paper that was published uh, this month by Jason Hickel. That is a quite nice and quite famous guy now in post-growth degrowth. He's from Swaziland. He's working in Barcelona. And uh, he proved, actually, that the real benefits of capitalism only came when unions, socialist movements come into action after the Second World War and really were able to share the, the technological benefits produced by capitalism to everybody through social mobilization. So how we can build from this idea of technology, this idea of social system, and uh, this idea of crisis, so taking advantage of the crisis, and create the social movements that bring together many things, environmental crisis, concern about climate change, concern about biodiversity, but also concerns about good life, uh, reduction of consumption combined with an increase of well-being, non degrees. So anti-austerity measure, equality, redistribution of wealth, anti-war movements, all the things that in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 70s, both in Europe and in the US were instrumental to create a positive change, like real change in law, in organization, in perspective. Yeah, no, I feel like, yeah, with those examples, absolutely, the change doesn't come from the top or, or a policy or a, maybe a law being enacted, but probably from people being just fed up with the status quo and they want things to change. And I think if enough people are loud enough and if enough people care, then I, I would like to think that, yeah, that, that change is possible. Yeah, because the only, the, the other, the only other uh, option left is escapism. And there are two forms of escapism. One is the rich escapism. You know, that's uh, bunkers and uh, refuge and all sorts of uh, compounds, secret compounds underground. And this is a form of rich escapism. There are also like a hippie form of escapism that are definitely not new. Going back to the rural, which is totally fine to me, or sort of mid-middle kind of form of escapism like mine, right? Renouncing to be in a big university, going to a smaller university. But this is, can be only a part of the solution. The other component is, I think, I think is inescapable. It's something that is needed. It's social mobilization. It's how we can combine all the different souls of anti-capitalism, anti-growthism, anti-modernism, anti-life. Because at the end of the day, for me, capitalism is an anti-life. 
phenomenon. How we, com- we can combine all these different souls to create a movement that uh, is able to demand and, and, and to change things. Yeah, no, it's a, a big task for sure. Yeah, I always think about, yeah, can it scale too, right? Because right now our, our current system, the one that we predominantly have, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's working, I guess. But, you know, these these kind of niche ideas, even degrowth itself, you know, it's like how how could we all adopt that? I think that's going to be a, a big challenge just from, from what I've kind of looked into is to make it kind of mainstream. Because even myself, right, living in a tiny house, living very frugally, living very simply, that's not really going to be what everyone wants to do, right? So how do we either maybe convince those more affluent countries to maybe adopt more sustainable behaviors and then also support the the other countries as well? No, no, you say, you say that the system is working, you're right. The system is working, but for whom is working? There is some, some, some recent research about who is appropriating the benefit of economic growth. You can see through this study, now you have to trust me, right? Because I don't, I'm not giving you the reference now. I mean, that's the aim of the podcast. The study shows that uh, 1% of population is appropriating 25% of the wealth and of economic growth. It means that economic growth is actually benefiting on a very small part of population, which is also the most, the part of population that pollutes the most, which is somehow against the conventional idea that poverty is producing environmental degradation and destruction and goes on. Uh, against the idea that uh, economic growth is essential to reduce poverty. This is another big myth. Economic growth reduces poverty only uh, if there are specific policy in place. Like the vast majority of the people that came out of poverty in the last 30 years were in China. China was able to bring out of poverty millions, hundreds of millions of people through economic growth, plus redistribution policy, right? And this didn't happen in Latin America that followed the recipes of uh, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So economic growth per se, only economic growth doesn't reduce poverty, right? So the, the system is work is working for a minority. I would correct you. <laughs> but you make an important point. Not everybody is going to will to live like you or like me. So how we do that? But then if you think in these terms, we have two options, or a forced degrowth that can lead to a very dystopic uh, outcome. One dystopic outcome can be ecofascism. We already seen some forms of ecofascism in which a small elite decide who has the right to consume, where and how. And the vast majority lives badly. Or a plan democratically controlled and just degrowth. I don't see uh, tertium non datur, Romans say. No, there is no third option because we don't have the resources and the energy to maintain this, the level of consumption that European and American society use. Yeah, obviously not everyone necessarily wants to live like me in a tiny house. And, and I think for a large segment of the population, nor should they, right? They should be growing and they should be um, doing better than, than they are, right? Yes, this is absolutely important. So the dimension of justice in climate change and so in allocating responsibilities and also in this process of uh, transitioning, right? So I cannot go to an African country and say you have to degrowth. Maybe I can, I can say that to the elite, well-educated elites in London and Paris, no? they send them their kids to abroad and come back and rule the country, right? But because of the fact that the process of economic growth, that is something recent in history. It has four centuries. Something is is um, a singularity, if you want to go use a physics uh, 
jargon, is a singularity in human history. But this growth was possible because of appropriation, expoliation, violence, and oppression of indigenous people. So we, there is an unequal responsibility to what's, what's happening now in terms of environmental distra- destruction. So they have the right to grow up to a certain level that will allow them to live a decent life. And this is very, we have very, very, we have very interesting debate in the last years in degrowth. And then everybody agrees that degrowth must be in the North, not in the South. Like people in Milan, in London, in New York, those people need to degrowth. But even in our society in the North, degrowth cannot be equal. There is a class dimension. I cannot tell to one of my students who virtually had no future ahead or very, very uh, dire future with precarity that they have to degrowth. Come on, guys. No. Who has to degrowth? The CEO. The Cristiano Ronaldo that uh, uses the private jets to bring the, the kitty to uh, the, his wife. The people who went to Sharm el-Sheikh for the COP using private jets with the tremendous, absurd hypocrisy. So not everybody needs to degrowth. I guess that's the the challenge if I'm thinking about it generally, you know, because I think a lot of people possibly want to become those people who have the planes and the jets and and have the money to travel and, and do all of the things and own the big companies. Hey, I could be famous, I could be rich, or I could just be, you know, just really well off. Why wouldn't I want that? So for me, I feel like that's very, very difficult to kind of go against that idea that you want to be the person at the top, because why wouldn't you want to be, right? Well, this is how the system works, right? And um, one coming back to my Marxist reading, I was my, one of my Italian favorite Marxists. Like, I'm Italian, no? I told you. Antonio Gramsci. And Antonio Gramsci was an anti-fascist, one of the founders of the communist, Italian Communist Party, uh, in jail by Mussolini. He died in jail. And uh, he wrote many what's called the notebooks from the jail, in which he says basically, uh, actually, he, he talked about famous Marxist uh, principle that that uh, says in any moment in history the dominant value of society are the do- are the values of the elites. So, and Gramsci added to this and say that the elites, the rulers of society, don't necessarily impose their power using violence. It's much more efficient to use a discourse and imaginaries and values, right? So they convince people that their interests and uh, the interests of the working class are the same. And this is exactly what you say. And this is how, how society is ruled, no? Together with that, many other mechanisms like social media, like uh, like media in general, and I'm pretty sure that you are familiar with Noam Chomsky ideas about uh, the, how the media works and how the media are instrumental in this mechanism, right? In convincing working class people that their interests are the same of the elites. Now, what Gramsci say about disrupting this? Gramsci say that we need we need to be organic intellectuals. We need cultural counter hegemonic thinking. So we had to build alternative storylines and we need to embed the organic intellectual are those people in the academia, in the governments, through civil society organization that can produce the alternative discourse together with the working class and spread until the counter-hegemony alternative discourse is so powerful that it can replace or balance the power of the hegemonic thinking. 
This is very simply speaking, is a theory of, of, of change of the state, right? He was a Marxist, so at the end of the day, he envisioned the working class to, to conquer through a revolution, of course. But this is very applicable. Actually, he was talking about crisis, no? He said that, he said, crises are those moments in which the old is still too strong to die and the new is still too weak to emerge. So there are these moments of uncertainty in which you have clearly something that is wrong with the dominant vision. At the same time, you have something new that is emerging and needs to be watered, needs to be looked after, right? So what we are doing in degrowth movements is to do exactly this, create counter-hegemonic thinking, external alternative storylines, which more and more and more people are getting on board. Ten years ago, having this discussion with you, or, or I've been invited to give these speeches at uh, the European Union levels, ten years ago will be impossible. In May, we have a conference in European Parliament called Beyond Growth with members of European Parliaments. Jason Hickel last week gave a speech in the Parliament in the Netherlands talking about this, this stuff. And this is the beginning of how values of people can change. Of course, you will, you will never be able to convince everybody. There will be some violence in, in the future, you know. Do you think that your governments will, will be keen of, of giving up uh, important resources and or military dominance over the world so easily without fighting? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's a good point that, you know, people are talking about it more. Personally, I think it's also great to have, you know, those examples like even yourself, you know, so you've talked about how you've moved to a smaller city to do your research as opposed to being in a, a bigger center. So for me, I think also walking your talk, as we say, you know, living your values. I think the more people that can do that, the easier the change might be, would you say? Yes. I mean, um, of, of course. I mean, I see more and more people around me buying this, this story. More and more. Even my dad, my father say, ah, you know, my, Mario, I'm producing food, exchanging for wine. This is degrowth, right? This idea are much more accepted now. So the ball is rolling. Now the point is that's how we can transform this into political movements. We have a series of podcasts in our group. They are mainly in Spanish. There is also like a couple of episodes in English. But we invited the Ministry of Consumption of Spain to discuss about degrowth. And he's totally convinced about degrowth. He's a Marxist, but he's totally convinced of, he's an like eco-socialist, how this is the way he defines himself. He came here. There was the vice chancellor of the university. There were people from local governments. And we, with uh, freedom, we talk about the needs for degrowth. A ministry. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine this happening in the US? Right, yeah. <laughs> of course, this is an exception. But we need to convince, we need to talk to a political party and talk about this stuff. Because many people, if you really explain what degrowth is and what, what making a life with working less, redistributive policy, spend more time with your friends and beloved people, they will understand. Yeah. And so I guess along those lines, you know, this show is about empowering citizens to take action on the climate crisis. And so when it comes to degrowth and changing society, I know there's a lot to do there, but, you know, what can individuals do to have an impact? At least two things. First, reading, studying about what people at the global level are doing. So be aware that we are connected. We are connected and prone to connection as your species, that we need connection and we uh, thrive uh, through connection to other people. And then local action. Pick up, choose, select a battle, a local battle. It can be a local battle about 
how food is pro is uh, provided to your local schools, to your kids' schools, about a pipeline that is supposed to cross your territory, about a piece of forest that is supposed to be commodified and privatized, about a new new plant that they want to stall in your territory, about any possible things that can affect you and your life. And fight. But not uh, tweeting, not uh, posting stuff on Instagram. Fight. And then refight. And, and then at certain point, you will win. I mean, this is the only recipe that I learned from Gandhi, you know? <laughs> fight doesn't mean that you have to go with a Kalashnikov. There are many different creative ways. I'm a big fan of uh, David Graeber direct action. Multiple ways of fighting, right? But fight. Fight in your local community. So what's, what's your fight, Michael? What's, what's your fight? Sustainability generally, but I think also just, yeah, living with less, happily living with less. That's, that's my fight. That's a big fight. So this has been an enlightening conversation, Mario. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, that was my chat with Mario. We obviously just scratched the surface of a very complex topic, but let's fight for a better world, for something that we believe in. Let's fight. What else can we do? Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our heads when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz in partnership with Environment Lethbridge. Original music by Gabriel Thane. If you would like to get in touch, email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. I'm trying to save the planet. Oh, will someone please save me?